0: My name is Daniel Coyle, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to a productive conversation with
1: me once again, Mike Vardy, and I'm joined this time by a guest who I've been looking forward to speaking with, and it's a fairly recent conversation as well, Daniel Coyle. He is the New York Times best-selling author of The Culture Code, The Talent Code, The Little Book of Talent, The Secret Race, Lance Armstrong's War, and Hardball, A Season in the Projects. He's also... The author of this book, The Culture Playbook, which is what we get into today. Uh, we talk about uh, the San Antonio Spurs, which is my basketball team of choice, why I like them, all that stuff. We talk about the different things that we can do as an organization and individually, uh, in, in an ever-evolving workspace to you know help the culture of our organizations. And you know, uh, if you're running an organization, this is important. You want to make sure that you can forge and foster a strong culture and what a culture is we get into all that and so much more now he is working as an advisor to the cleveland guardians formerly known as the cleveland indians and he lives in cleveland ohio during the school year and homer alaska not terribly far from where i am actually quite terribly far during the summer with his wife jen and their four children it was a great conversation i'm so glad that daniel took the time out of his schedule to speak with me so let's get to it here's my conversation with daniel Coyle. enjoy Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on a productive conversation today. Hey, it's good to be here with you. I'm ready to have one. Let's do this thing. All right. So right out of the gate, um, the book is called The Culture Playbook, 60 Highly Effective Actions to Help Your Group Succeed. And I mean, I've been going over your work for several years now. And one of the things that that struck me about culture and the idea of, of how you define culture and where it comes from, I think was right, right off the top of the book had me kind of going, you know, I like that. I like where this is going. And of course, when you go through the, there's several tips, we're not going to go through all of them today. Cause we want people to pick up the book, but right. I want to, I want to just get right into it. And where, where does culture come from? And, and do people have it a bit bass
0: backwards when it comes to building a culture? <laughs> I love that. I love that question. When, when we think about our culture, right? We say that word a lot. We have a certain mental model in our head, right? And that mental model that I think we carry around with us is that culture is like the personality of a group, right? It's like in their DNA, like Disney's Disney and Google's Google and the Marines are the Marines. And, and we sort of feel like it's just sort of in there literally interwoven with who they are. And In fact, when you dig into culture and spend, like I've spent the last seven years or so, visiting top performing groups, looking at the science underneath their performance, what you find out is that that point of view is totally wrong. It is not in their DNA. It's not their personality. It's actually their behaviors. It's their actions. It's the things they do. It has nothing to do with words and it has very little to do with sort of your your background or your psychology. It has to do with the behavior you're using to interact with each other. And great cultures are places where those behaviors make the group add up to more than its parts. So the interaction, and that's such a powerful word, right? We use that word all the time, interaction, but the interaction of good groups, great groups makes them add up to more. And so that's what culture is. Culture is a set of actions uh, that moves a group toward a goal that's really what it is. It's not, it's not about values. It's not about, you know, cohesion or honesty or mission or purpose. Those are nice words, but really are your actions moving you toward where you want to go? And you know, it's funny because when we talk about productivity, a lot of people say, oh, productivity is about being efficient,
1: effective, all that stuff. I'm like, no, no, no. Productivity is really about the partnership, the active linking between intention and attention. So we tend to over like add flowery words and do all these things to, but I mean, I love that definition. And one, one of the things that, that you, brought right into the book right away was this idea of belonging cues, which I was like, okay, I want to, I want to dig into. So can you explain a little bit to the, to the listener right now, what a belonging cue is
0: and, and how important they are? Yeah, no, they're really at the core. They're the, they form the platform of safety in which all great groups exist and their behaviors. You know, we normally think we use a word like chemistry a lot when we talk about groups, right? Like I, they always have great chemistry. You walk in the locker room or you walk in the school or you walk in the bakery, you can feel it. What you're actually feeling are belonging cues. They're short, simple, vivid behaviors that send a signal. We share a future. You have a voice here. Um, I care about you. We are going to do things together. These little behaviors and there's a, a cool example of that that I saw at a, at a company called Wipro. They were struggling with retention, so they did this one-hour experiment. They were losing half their people every year. Did this one-hour experiment, they took two groups. One group of new hires got a standard hour of training, and they met a star performer. They learned about the history of the company. The other group, they flipped it, and they said, hey, trainee, tell us about your best day. Tell us about like, what happens on your worst day. They asked if we were marooned on a desert island, what skills would you bring? You know, really simple questions, and the retention in the second group went up almost 300 percent because they had that chemistry, because they felt connected, and so that simple behavior, that belonging cue of saying, "Hey, what happens on your best day?" It's it's such a small moment, but great groups are built from those small moments of attending, caring, listening and sending a behavior that says, hey, we're going to do cool stuff together.
1: I remember reading uh, The Power of Moments with uh, Ch- uh, written by Chip and Dan Heath, and they talked about the John Deere onboarding process mm. of how, and it was just done in such an a way that made them feel right out of the gate that they were part of the team. And uh, to me, I mean, that's that's where this kind of stuff begins. And you said it, like you said, culture is a series of actions. And one of the things that... Um, I, I mentioned to you before we hit record is, uh, you've, you've done work with the San Antonio Spurs, my, my favorite basketball team. They are, they, I'm a lifelong Spurs fan. And it comes from there's, there's, I mean, they, they've, they're successful. They've, um, they have stars, but they've never really, the ego seems to be checked at the door. And I think that's, I mean, that starts at the top, but, but one of the, the reason I'm a Spurs fan I don't, I'm not from San Antonio. I live in Victoria, BC, Canada, right? Like, I, but it was, <laughs> and so people always ask, me, like, why are you a fan of these? And it often has nothing to do with, you know, hometown, you know, loyalty or, anything. it has to do with either maybe the design or, or who they brought on board. But in this case it was about the integrity of the Spurs franchise when they drafted David Robinson mm-hmm. and David Robinson is my favorite basketball player by you know, just not on the court, off the court, he is, he, he to me represents like character integrity. And from that point on, once I saw David Robinson in action with, especially during that whole draft series, because I mean, I'm dating myself a bit, but the fact of the matter is, is that the integrity of the Spurs said, you know, we're going to draft him. We're going to let him fulfill his obligation to the Navy. He comes on board and he is everything that they asked for and more. In fact, his there was a, there was a kind of this trickle down from him to Tim Duncan to Tony Parker, but you can't ignore who you mentioned in the book, Greg Popovich as well. What, what about that franchise? Like there's an, there's an example of a franchise. You could argue the 49ers when Bill Walsh was in charge is another that what about the culture of that franchise allowed them to be so successful? Like what was the thing that you think, um, you know, kind of has
0: allowed them to have not just success in fits and starts, but sustainable success. Yeah, no, so fascinating. I love them too, and I, I spent a lot of time digging in there, and spent four days out there. Here's what, here's here's an example of it in action. You know, it's not one thing, right? It's it's the combination of these people and these principles. And I went out there, and, and usually, you know, places like that, especially San Antonio, they don't really let journalists in very often. Um, and so I, I sort of gradually uh, persuaded um, them to come in. And when I when I went to visit RC Buford, the general manager, picked me up at the airport. And then I spent four days, like, basically at his side, like kind of staying at his house all day long and talking about all kinds of stuff. And he was, they're so curious to learn and to get better is really one of their core, core things that you see, even in that small interaction. But to go back to our belonging cues, I think their ability to create connection with players and with people in the in the group is astonishing. Um, for example, Greg Popovich, at the end of every year, he goes up to every player and he says, thank you for allowing me to coach you. Now, he doesn't have to do that, right? He's paid millions of dollars to coach. They are paid millions of dollars to play, but he doesn't do it because of that. And for the same reason, when you go, I went there, I thought they were going to like be watching film. I attended a practice. Um, and it's time to watch film. You know, they're going to focus on film. But what came up was not a uh, game film. It was a CNN documentary on the history of the Civil Rights Voting Act. And they talked about it right? Like what bigger belonging cue is there to say, hey, this is really important stuff to talk about. Tell me about what your grandparents and parents thought about this. Your parents, they probably lived through it. And Popovich created this extraordinary conversation about something that really matters. Um, So the ability to continually, in an entrepreneurial way, look for points of connection. And and they do it especially around food. Popovich spends in the mid six figures on a food bill every year because he's continually bringing people together to eat together and spend time together. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to describe that relentless connection, but they are relentless is a good word. Entrepreneurial is a good word and continually seeking those larger points of connection that, that, that. Send that belonging cue. That say, "Hey, I see you. I, I don't. You're not here just to do some transactional, compliant job. Show up and go away." Um, and you've probably heard the story about when they lost uh, in the in. They almost won the NBA championship. They lost on the last second shot to the Miami Heat, 2014. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right after that, that was painful to spread. watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brutal! The the toughest loss maybe in the history of, of basketball. Like they were hit by five points with mm-hmm. 21 seconds left, and they lost but what did they do right afterwards? Popovich had them all go to dinner. They all went to dinner, the most brutal loss in the history of sports. And what's the first thing that his instinct is come together. We need to come together. So that kind of, that, that, that value <clears throat> and that personality and the, and the skill set with those that goes with that personality is something really to go to school on. I think in anybody who's trying to build a good culture. <clears throat> Are you a small business owner struggling to find
1: the right talent for your team? I've been there and I know how challenging it can be. That's why I recommend LinkedIn jobs. It's not just any job board. It's a community where you can find professionals who are the perfect fit for your business, many of whom aren't checking other job sites. In fact, 70% of LinkedIn users aren't visiting other leading job sites, making LinkedIn your best bet for finding top talent with LinkedIn jobs. You can post your job and reach qualified candidates quickly. 86% 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And now, you can post your job for free at linkedin.com conversation. That's right, for free. Don't miss out on finding top talent. Post your job for free at linkedin.com conversation today. Terms and conditions apply. During during uh, the the past few years, which we can now officially call a moment in time, you know, during the pandemic, one of the things that came up, that rose up, and I think it was accelerated, it was happening regardless. I think was the work from home, like the idea that you that there's remote work going on. And throughout the book, you've got little little um, kind of watermarks, I guess, for lack of a better number, little, little earmarks that say, Hey, this is a, a strategy for, for, you know, the, those organizations, those cultures that are also integrating work from home, or maybe, maybe are challenged with that. What, when you were putting the book together, and I mean, there's some, there's the idea of, you know, um, and, and I think you, you mentioned cool kid bias in the, in the, in the book, which I think is exactly, <laughs> it, it kind of like, yeah, that resonated and, and a lot of other tips in there. Um, why, why was it integral for you and so important to make sure that you included that in this playbook for, for organizations to help build a culture that
0: is, frankly, can be hybrid at this point? It's such a fascinating problem, and so many people are facing it right now. Really, the last two years have shown the world of work. The landscape is, is really profoundly changing, and our ability to change is a lot bigger than we thought. I think that's been the big takeaway of the last two years. Like, you know what? We can make this work. But the deeper takeaway is that the thing that's gonna make it work isn't like some magical leadership um, you know, gene that we have. What's gonna make it work is is intention and reflection. What's gonna make it work is skills. And the way that you build skills is that you kind of have to assess where you're at, where you're going, and you have to create time to sort of really figure that out together. So the tips in the book are designed to help people do that. Um, and for example. You know, there's a tip in there that's to really think about dividing your work into two buckets. Where do you want to be productive and where do you want to be creative? And if you want to be creative, really be with people, like be proximal with people, be in the same room with people. It's much easier to be creative in a group if you're, if you're with people. Another sort of, you know, really simple tip that, that people uh, respond to is this idea of keeping an open face. A Navy SEAL commander described that to me one time. He said, your face is like a door. It's got two settings. It can be open or it can be closed. And we we sort of know what closed looks like, right? We're focused, our brows are down, we're thinking. And especially when we're connecting remotely, like the signals that our face send are incredibly powerful. And tuning into the fact that, you know, having an open expression, having your, uh, you know, using your eyes ends up being a massive signal of connection and energy and enthusiasm and engagement. Um, when we're trying to build exactly those things through these crazy little windows, you know, so that that sort of thing, um, you know, the ideas of a pre-meeting warm-up, like this idea that we should like do a warm-up before we have a virtual meeting, is totally fascinating and very useful. And like a couple of years ago, you would have said um, yeah, that's insane. But actually, when you look and in, in the book, I talk about a, a guy named Glenn Fajardo who works for Stanford's Design School who has created all these virtual rituals for people. And some of them sound really crazy. Like, let's all bite a lemon at the same time. You know, let's all bite a lemon at the same time and see what happens. But what he really unlocks is, in order to have a great virtual meeting, you have to create a space. You have to sort of have some create some experience that you're sharing together. Um, And that's why eating on camera is so powerful. Uh, it, it's a weird sort of way of breaking bread together, and we're kind of wired to respond to that. So as we're moving into this space, and I included probably 15 you know, skills in the book, and in the next three years, I'm confident that we're, we're going to invent hundreds more skills that will help us bridge this gap and help us work synchronously, asynchronously, um, to sort of optimize both our work lives and our live lives. You mentioned, um,
1: eating on camera and I think some people struggle with that because it's, it's, it's the, hu- it's a human act. Like it's human. There's a humanness to it. There's a vulnerability to it. Yeah. And you actually talk about this idea of the vulnerability loop in the book as well. I want to get to some of the, some of the, the, the tips, the, the, the kind of t- actions that you can take. I uh, will touch on a few more of those, but I want to talk about that vulnerability loop because vulnerability especially in the wake of like Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, she's really focused on vulnerability and we're seeing a lot more about that. And I think that, you know, because we're, we've, we've had somewhat of a, I wouldn't say a slowdown, but maybe a period of reflection. And and now that we're all maybe at this point coming back together a little bit more in person, as well as, you know, uh, we're we're trying to create a human or craft this experience in a virtual setting to some degree. And now we're, we've got this hybrid thing happening. Um, why is vulnerability, uh, why is it so important and how does how do vulnerability loops kind of forge a a
0: culture and even strengthen it? Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. When we normally think about trust and vulnerability, we usually think of it as follows. We usually think like, I'm going to build up some trust and then, then I'll be vulnerable. Right? Like I need to build up some Mm -hmm. trust with these people before I start like saying what I don't know or admitting that I'm not good at something. But in fact, we've got it like exactly backwards. And great cultures understand this. Like a vulnerability loop is when two or more people just kind of open up and say what they don't know and say what they want to learn and say that they're missing some pieces and ask for help. Um, It's not, when we say the word, it's not necessarily opening up about your childhood or your deepest fears. It's more an intellectual vulnerability to say, I don't know everything. And I might have screwed that up and I might screw up what's next. And when you meet great leaders, what you often find is that they're very skilled at sending that signal. You know, I met a guy named Dave Cooper who trained the troops that got bin Laden. And the way he put it was the most, the four most important words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. Because those four words give everyone around you permission. We're really built to protect our status. Like Our brains just want to have status. We want to protect the status we have. That's why it's so hard to be vulnerable. And that's why that signal of saying, look, hey, we're gonna take all our failures over the last year and we're gonna write them on Post-its and we're gonna put them on a wall, right? We're gonna have a failure wall. That's what good cultures do, because that makes it safe to say, hey, we don't have all the answers. We need everyone to contribute. We need everyone's help. And sending that signal, like relentlessly signaling fallibility, not just sort of occasionally, but relentlessly signaling it, sends that signal and creates that trust. Because to your point, when, when you get a vulnerability loop happening, that's actually what brings people closer together. When two people say, I don't know that, and the other one says, I didn't know it either. Let's go learn it together. You know, Think about the best friends you have in your life. Are they the people you're least vulnerable with or are they people you're most vulnerable with? Groups are built along exactly the same dynamic. And so building a way to think about vulnerability loops is the same way you would think about exercise to make your body stronger. Like You have to systematize them and do them regularly. And yes, they burn, right? They hurt just like exercise does, but that's what makes social groups stronger. And so... The, the tips that I've included in the book are sort of like little curls and 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 burpees and pushups that make that hurt a bit and feel a little strange, but just like exercise, they they make they create trust and they they build strength. You
1: know, uh, it's it's funny that. Yeah, I've been trying to do a lot more vulnerability lately, especially, you know, around, you know, just saying, I don't know. And that includes with my kids too. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Instead of being the person that should know stuff. And I think one of the things that I've found is it's the uncertainty of what the reaction is going to be. You know what I mean? Like you've got this story in your head of like, if I say, I don't know. They're going to think I'm stupid or they're going to think like, who am I? All the, all the imposter syndrome and comparison trap shows up. How, how does someone, we'll deviate a little bit. How does someone kind of get, is it, is it just the testing of the waters that helps you get past that? Or is there any, any tactic that you feel maybe individually or as a culture that, that can help people break past that barrier? Cause I think it's a big one.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. One tactic is to do it in kind of a safe place at first, right? Don't do it. Don't, don't get a megaphone and stand up in front of the whole company. Do it with your three closest friends or your one closest friend. But there is nothing like the experience of it. And I think in my experience looking around at people, once you do it, you kind of break the ice and you realize, yeah, that imposter syndrome is just the syndrome. And actually the smartest people I know are the ones who say, I might have this totally wrong. I need your help to figure this out. What am I missing? You know, anybody who walks around in this day and age that we're in now and and claims to <laughs> that they're not making any mistakes and claims that they really know the answer to everything is completely delusional. So the smartest people I know are the ones who are the quickest to say, I could be way off on this. And 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 when you sort of tune into that, and when you actually experience it for yourself and you get to that other side of saying in front of your kids, you know, I really goofed that up. Um you realize, hey, it's way nicer on the other side. It is way looser. It's way more creative. It's way realer. It's like a nicer way to go through the world. And so you end up having the feeling of putting down this backpack that you've of rocks that you've been carrying around. And you can kind of say, Yeah, this is my first crack at the presentation, but it's really I, I really have some holes that I need your help filling.
1: Uh, you talked about like the, the, the idea of the smartest people that you know. What's As we go through the book, and I'm going to touch on some of the tips in a second, but what's the smartest way, do you think, to go through this book, The Culture Playbook?
0: I think, you know, that's funny because when I started out writing it, you know, it was pre-pandemic. I had written this book called The Culture Code, which, which has a lot of science and story and theory in it. And I was thinking... There was a demand for sort of like, I want the toolkit. I want the recipe book. Tell me exactly what to do. Just just cut to the chase and tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that'll be kind of easy to write. Like it'll be like a recipe book. You make this. You make that. And here are the actions you should take. And as I went through that, it became apparent that like it's more complex than that. And the world is more complex. And all these changes in the landscape that you've referred to—Covid, hybrid, um, even social justice areas make it clear that really what was called for was more of a conversation. So there's a lot I ended up writing a book that is much more of a conversation where there are big chunks, big sections where I'm asking questions and you're going to put in a response and you're asked to reflect on how how much safety is in your group and how much purpose is in your group and where are you where you're at your best and what barriers stop you at being from your best. So that was kind of how it, how it evolved that we ended up in, in much more of a space where this, this feels, I think to people who have done it, um, it's the kind of a book that you do with other people so that you can figure out where you're at and where you want to go. Cause there's no recipe when it comes to culture. It's, it's a process and that process reflection is really at the heart of it. And so at the very beginning of the book, there's a question I asked two questions. What do you look like at your best? Like when your group is at your best, what does that look like? If there was a documentary film crew that came in to film you, what would they see? What behaviors would they see? What actions, to your point, would they see? And then the second question is, what stops that from happening every day? Like, what's the barrier? What's Why doesn't that happen all the time? And so those questions, way more than any recipe could ever do, um, hopefully kind of unlock a reflective process in the group where you can kind of say, yeah, that's our best. And the things that are stopping us are X, Y, and Z, their distraction, their time, their status, their communication structures we should get rid of or add. So it's, it's a process. It's a conversation and and it's been fun to like, like ignite it. Let's get
1: into some of the tips. I'm going to go through three of them. Uh, there's lots in here. And I think I encourage anyone listening to this, uh, if you're listening right now, you're like, where, where should I, like, they're, they're all great. And there's some that we dove into a little bit already, but one of the ones you mentioned fun um, Cal Newport's been on the program a few times and he talks about the idea of deep work. You, you know, he, he's got a book called deep work and you know, there's there's a difference between shallow work and deep work. And you've got a tip here about having deep fun can we dig into that a little bit? Because that is something that I think people don't really add. They don't think of fun in depth so much
0: mm. as they just broadly categorize it, right? Right, right. Well, I love Cal's work and I would highly recommend it to, to anybody. He's an incredible thinker about this stuff. Yeah, the uh, the idea, you know, the idea of fun is that fun basically comes in these two big categories. Category number one is shallow fun, which is enjoyment, you know, just enjoying playing ping pong or enjoying having an IPA at the end of the day and just kind of the shallow, bubbly, experiential fun that you have. And for a long time at work, that was like what people thought created engagement, right? We should have beanbag chairs. We should have Nerf guns. We should have ping pong tables because those are, quote, fun, right? But that's only part of the fun ecosystem. The other part of the fun ecosystem, and I've also heard it called as um, type one and type two fun, um, type two or deep fun is the fun of solving hard problems with people that you admire. Right. It's not about bubbly pleasure and enjoyment. It's about like deep enjoyment. Um, it's when you take control over the experience of being in your group, an example, maybe the best thing to do is to think about it in terms of an example. Uh, there's a company I heard of recently. They're, they're out of Michigan. I think they make tents. They, um, they decided to send a team out in search of the best coffee on the planet to bring back to the group. Like we want to have the best coffee here in the office, the best. So this team goes on this, this search to find and the best machine and the best oat milk and the best everything to bring back. That is an example of deep fun. They're taking control over the, over what it's like to be in the group. The U S women's national soccer team was another example of this when they started they started designing their own cleats. They started putting their the names, not of their own names, but the names of their heroes on the backs of their jerseys. So it would say Serena or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And they ultimately fought for equal pay together. Um, really fundamentally taking control. It's when people get a little bit of a budget to decorate their cubicle the way they want to. And there was a guy who decorated his cubicle like a hunting lodge, you know, with like deer pelts (laughs) on the walls and stuff like that. Like where there is this sense of you're not assigning people to do stuff. You're asking them, what can we do to make things better, to make us function better, to make us enjoy our work more. Um, And you're doing that together. That's, that's deep fun where you're kind of, teaming up to make good things happen for the group um, and and so it's it's much less about the ping-pong table and much more about the conversation of what could be better around here and how can we team up in a way to make it better
1: now we're going to shift gears because then you've got another tip saying do nothing together which for someone listening to this right now is going wait a minute how is that
0: productive but eh, let's let's get into that a bit no, it's kind of crazy when, and when you see groups as if there's a few groups that that did this quite effectively one were a couple couple of restaurants where they would just have these video feeds between the two accompanying restaurants these partner restaurants another was were these Google teams that like to just leave um, they would just sort of leave uh, a screen open remotely but they'd be they'd be watching each other um, and just kind of creating the awareness of the other one there but finding time to sort of just hang out uh, there's an idea a design firm called IDEO, they ring a gong uh, every Wednesday for this group tea time. The gong rings, everybody just kind of goes and hangs out and collides. And this this concept of collisions is really at the core of it, where you don't really know um, when the good ideas are going to come or when the fun relationships are going to build. But in those times of just hanging out and not necessarily being, quote, productive, Maybe you're just having tea. Maybe you're just chatting with somebody at another remote location, but that's kind of when the relationships happen and it's when ideas uh, are built. So this idea of maximizing collisions by creating these spaces where there really isn't a huge expectation that we're going to get work done, but we are going to hang out.
1: I'm going to, I'm not going to reveal the one that you think is the most important uh, in the book, but uh, I want people to go pick up the book, but it is, uh, it's been discussed on this podcast before with other guests to a degree. And it's, 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 it is absolutely uh, something people should do, but there's something that, that you mentioned that I think people don't do enough of. And it's another tip, actually a friend of mine, uh, Nadia mentioned this to me. She has what she calls a, a, like a brag book, which is like almost like the reflection piece where here's all the things that I've done, because we tend to look at what do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? We, we, and it, it's that I was actually watching. I don't know if you've been watching winning time at all. The uh, Lakers, uh, yeah, a series on HBO max. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, it's, 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 it's great. Um, but, uh, spoiler alert, there's this little conversation where, you know, Jerry Buss is saying, um, I, I get this thing and then the, 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 delight lasts for moments. And then I want the next thing. Like why won't it last? And I think a lot of people spend so much time worrying about the next thing instead of, as you say, marking the ends of a project and, and, and celebrating that. Can we get into that? Because I think it's something we get stuck on what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next, instead of reveling in what we've accomplished. I
0: know. I know. It's so, it's so true. Like, and, and I think it, it speaks to this larger truth that like, you know, narrative and story is the most powerful force on the planet. And, and especially when it comes to our own creating meaning in our own lives. And as the world has sped up, as the world is, you know, as to-do lists and this frictionless technological world in which we live, we constantly are besieged with this channel of productivity where we're supposed to run down that particular channel, clicking things off and the truth is, the better you get it running down that channel, the fuller it gets, and the more stuff you have to do. Like, like, it is, it is deeply true. And there's a great book about this. You should have him on, Oliver Berkman, 4,000, it's called 4,000 Weeks. Oh. Um Tremendous! I'd love to get Oliver on.
1: He's he's I've read it. It's brilliant, and I'd love to get, He is, uh, yeah. I mean, he's written the antidote. He's a great writer, and that it's it's literally one of the best books on time management I've read in a long time.
0: I totally agree, and and, and what it speaks to is this thing: where the more productive you try to be, um, the more that just grows and grows and grows into this unsustainable burden. And so, switching over to the other channel, which I would sort of call reflection right? As opposed to there's doing things and there's thinking about things. <laughs> you get out of the doing things, get to the thinking about them space. And that's what this tip speaks to, to take time to stop at the end of projects and mark it and figure out what sort of meaning got created, figure out what you impacted, figure out the benefit you created, figure out what you learned. Um, and good groups always take the time. You know, A, a good leader on this is Amy Poehler, the uh, comic director. When she finishes a project, they have a dinner and they do a daisy chain of toasts. So I would toast Mike and then Mike would toast to Jeannie and we would just go around and, and everyone would be expressing their appreciation for what they had learned and grown and changed. And that kind of thing is one thing that has, is becoming extinct in modern life, right? That moment where you stop and say, Hey, what impact did that have? Let's really enjoy this. And you see that so often in good cultures because you have this choice, this perpetual choice we have. Do we work on the project or do we take a second and think about the people? And good cultures always, always tap the brakes on the productivity lane and shift their attention and energy over to, how's our relationship doing? Like, what's going on? Let's let's connect. Um, that That spaciousness and that time that they take to do that is really a a huge marker of why they're successful. Because while it feels and looks inefficient, like, hey, why are we having this daisy chain dinner when we could be getting more stuff done, right? It feels wasteful. Well, yeah, it feels wasteful, but you're actually investing in the trusting relationships that allow you to do anything. So you are making an incredible investment, just like Popovich thanking his players, right? Like that's really inefficient use of time, right? He doesn't need to do it, but it is the best use of his time because it builds the thing that really is the core asset of the group, which is these, these trusting, caring relationships.
1: You know, it's, it's, uh, every time I think about quantitative productivity and qualitative productivity, it really sucks. It's so hard to measure qualitative productivity and organizations have a real tough time doing it because there's no numbers necessarily attached to it that are visible right out of the gate. But if you don't have the balance, then yeah, it's you're, you're cranking, cranking widgets instead of building relationships and forging things that are going to. Really make an impact, including relationships. Last question before I let you go, and this is another tip: What is the best coffee machine that you can afford? What is the best coffee machine that you've come across? Wow! I'm a coffee nerd myself. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah.
0: yeah. I that's a great question for your listenership, and I hope that they would respond with their own their own suggestions. I, I this has been a long journey for me. Like the Spanish sort of espresso stovetop one was really into that for a while. But lately we've gone with this, this insulated yep. French press, insulated French press. So it's, mm. so it's not the glass, but it stays hot and you just crank it down. We got two sizes, one for like, you know, six cups, one for like three cups, but it's, um it's bomber.
1: And the coffee itself. I, I actually found.
0: That's, that's, <laughs> that's, we're all over the place. Well,
1: and see, that's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing, right? Like, I mean, so for me, I actually been, was jonesing for a Chemex for a really long time. And I'm like, well, I can't justify the expense. And somebody, I mean, amazing. Some of the things people get rid of, I was on Facebook marketplace of all things. And I saw, um, you know, when they give away free stuff or they're having a garage sale or whatever, put things on the curb, they had a shelving unit and they're like things for free. And I could see a Chemex on the, like, we're giving this away for free. And it was a seven minute drive from my house. And I told my son, I'm like, I'll be right back. And I drove out. And I got the Chemex. I literally like, it was like, I didn't even go through, like there was other stuff that did not care. Grab the Chemex. That's my go-to. I mean, that's, that's the machine that I used to make uh, coffee and I get coffee. I mean, yeah, the beans are a whole other thing, but yeah, it's life is too short for bad coffee. That's, yeah. that, that's basically what it boils down to. It's part of a ritual too, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, uh, Daniel, this has been great. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, the book is called The Culture Playbook, 60 Highly Effective Actions to Help Your Group Succeed. Where can people pick up the book and where can people learn more about you and the work that you do?
0: Uh, the book, just about just about anywhere. Um, you know, Porchlight has got, is a nice site. They do a lot of big discounts if you're reading it as a group. That can be useful. Um, and about me, danielcoyle.com. Thanks again for having a productive conversation with me. Hey, totally enjoyed it, Mike. Look forward to this, to our next one. Let's just say that. Absolutely.
1: Thanks to Daniel for joining me on the program. If you want to get the skinny on everything we talked about links, all that fun stuff, you can find that on the podcast app you're using right now and just click through, or you can go to productivity.com slash podcast 420 20 to make that happen as well. When you look at your podcast app right now and you see that subscribe button glowing because you haven't subscribed yet, you might want to do that because you don't want to miss next episode and all of the episodes that we've had in the past and the ones to come next week. I'm joined by Marshall Goldsmith, another great conversation that I don't want you to miss. Uh, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to speak to Marshall. I've been following his work for a long time, like Daniel's and I I can't wait for, for you to hear that conversation. It's another productive one. And if you want to support the show in another way besides subscribing, you want to visit our sponsors page and check out all the sponsors that were mentioned today on the podcast, as well as some of the other sponsors of the show in the past as well. Just go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors to learn more. And then when you do that, they'll know I sent you their way. That's it for this episode of a productive conversation. Another productive conversation is in the books. This is Mike Vardy, thanking you for joining me and reminding you
0: to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.